Good to see you all. How are, how are we today? Doing okay? All right. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm part of our preaching team. And I'm curious, who comes to mind when you think of this story? A wealthy family with an only son are walking to the movies when they are mugged. Both parents are shot. And the son has to go back to his huge mansion and be raised by his butler. Who who am I talking about? Batman, all right. Yeah, you know that origin story. And maybe you know the story about the, uh, you know, gangly, insecure, weak teenager who's uh, raised by his aunt and uncle. Uh, Uncle is gunned down after saying just the most brilliant thing anyone's ever said. And then he's bit by a radioactive spider. And anybody... Spider-Man, right? We love origin stories. We love these stories that tell us, oh, that's how this person got their power. That's how this person got their motivation. That's how this hero was forged into the person that he or she is today. We love origin stories. We love origin stories when it relates to brands and companies. I don't know if you've heard the origin story about Phil Knight and the waffle maker and Nike, right? Uh, Back in the 70s, what was happening is all these new... uh, tracks for track and field were being put in and what would happen is when the athletes would have the metal spikes it would tear up the thing and the other shoes that they had was too slippery and so uh, the, the story goes that some of the early people at Nike had a waffle iron and thought you know what maybe if we pour this polyurethane into this waffle it will create a kind of plastic cleat type thing that will work and so you can actually go to Nike to their headquarters where they have a little museum to themselves and in there you can find the old rotted Waffle iron. We love these origin stories. Uh, How many of you have something that is going to arrive at your house today or tomorrow or Tuesday from Amazon, right? I don't know what you have coming. I don't know if it's deodorant or diapers or toilet paper or back to school supplies. But think about how far Amazon has come from these early days of uh, Jeff Bezos' first office. That's the Jeff Bezos origin origin picture. So what we just read a moment ago was talking about how the people of Israel were groaning, they were under all this stress, under all this pressure, being enslaved in Egypt, they were crying out to God and God heard their groaning. God saw the pain they were in and God knew that he needed to intervene. But what all of chapter two is, is really giving us the origin story of the hero, the messenger that God would use to intervene. And so that's what we have before us today is this origin story. One of the earliest origin stories is this story, this backstory of Moses, the baby who would someday become the deliverer of Israel. Just by way of review, this is our second week in this series, and we've said that the theme of the book of Exodus is that Exodus is about the God who makes himself known in a world that's long forgotten him. What we'll see actually is through the first half of Exodus, Exodus 1 to uh, about chapter 18, God is going to be revealing himself to the people of Israel. Then in chapters 19 to the end, in chapter 40, he's going to be revealing himself to the nations through Israel. This whole book is about the God who reveals himself, makes himself known in a world that's long forgotten him. We saw last week that uh, the descendants of uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had found themselves 
in Egypt at the end of uh, the book of Genesis. They've now been forgotten, and the people of Israel, the Hebrews, have grown to huge, huge numbers, so much so that they're now a threat to Egypt and to Pharaoh. He's afraid of them, he's scared of them, and he's been ratcheting up the oppression that they're facing, and it culminates in chapter 1, verse 22. Listen to this. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. His oppression is now culminating in genocide to Hebrew baby boys. And that's where we're gonna pick up this origin story of a Hebrew baby boy. So here's what I wanna do today. I wanna just kind of walk through Exodus chapter two, make sure we understand this origin story, and then I wanna take some time and pull out some lessons that I think speak to where we are and we'll connect with where we are here today. So uh, let's pray together. Let's ask God's help and then we'll dive in. Father, uh, we come to you thankful that you see us, that you hear us, that you know us. Thankful that you're a God who remembers your covenant, who remembers your promises. And we ask God now that you would speak to us, that you would make yourself known to us and then through us. God, in particular, would you give us insight into how this old origin story still speaks to us today? We invite you here to lead and guide us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, Exodus chapter two. If you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and grab it. Let me just tell you something as we dive in here that uh, especially if you're new, this would be important for you to know. Um, At our church, whatever our main passage is, we almost never put the verses on the screen. Uh, We'll put other verses that we refer to, we'll put those on the screen, but we don't put the main text on the screen. And that's actually on purpose. It's because we want you to have a Bible, we want you to bring a Bible, we want you to get used to following along in the Bible. Maybe you read it on your phone, that's fine. But however you're gonna read the Bible uh, from Monday through Saturday, we'd love you to have that with you so that you can kind of just get in the habit of looking at the text and following along with us. So that's why we do this. So if you don't have a Bible, you're gonna want one to follow through this story. There should be one in a chair somewhere near you, in front of you, uh, go ahead and grab that, Exodus chapter two, and you can follow along with us. It begins this way. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his, as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. Let's just stop there uh, for a moment. I, I have four kids, three daughters and a boy in that order. And I remember uh, being in the ultrasound room when we first found out that we were having a daughter uh, back when when we found out about Abby. And I remember the first thought I had when they said, oh, it's a girl. My first thought was, how am I going to pay for a wedding? (laughs) And then God multiplied that concern by giving me two more daughters. And so when we found out that we were pregnant for a fourth time, we thought, you know what, if we have a girl... That'll be awesome, we love our girls, and we have all this stuff we'll need. We have all the girls' stuff you could ever need. But if we have a boy, our families will be so excited that they will just go crazy and we'll have all we ever need for that. So you know what, wouldn't it be fun if we just this last time didn't find out? And so we didn't find out, and I remember being at the hospital, and that was kind of the big thing, is what are we gonna have? I remember the baby came out, and I looked down, it was a boy, yes. 
right? And I remember about a half hour later, my parents and my in-laws, they all showed up at the hospital and they were kind of waiting outside the room. We, we had texted them, hey, the baby's here, but we're not telling you what it is, right? And so they're waiting outside the room and we kind of, I opened the door and I said, I'd like to introduce you to Henry Lee Simmons. And they all went, ah! My mom comes in the room, she goes, Molly, thank you. I was like, Mom, I don't know if you know about biology, but you should actually be thanking me. But it was so exciting. It was so thrilling. Little Mary was holding him going, he's so cute. Right? And it was just this incredible event. That's a very different experience than the way Moses' dad felt when he was born. Rather than introducing Moses, it was like, shh, keep this quiet. It's a boy. Because as we read a moment ago, Pharaoh had issued this edict that every boy should be drowned in the Nile. It was a very different experience. Rather than celebrating, rather than being excited, rather than rejoicing in the cries of a baby boy, There was a feeling of, shh, keep him quiet. This is evil, what Pharaoh did, saying that all these boys should be killed. I don't have time to get into all of it, but what he's doing is he's killing babies to exterminate a race. That's not actually altogether different from the origins of Planned Parenthood in our country, founded by people with a dark history in eugenics trying to, through birth control, forge an elevated race of people. It's evil, it's wicked. It was wicked then, it's wicked now. So a woman conceived and bore a son, verse two, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. How do you keep a two-month-old from crying? How do you keep a three-month-old from crying? How do you keep from being discovered that you've had a son? I don't know, but it had to be very difficult. And verse three says, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. That's kind of a tar substance. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now it's interesting, in the beginning of verse three there where it says she took for him a basket, that word basket in Hebrew is the same word that's translated in Genesis as ark. She made for him an ark. She sealed it up. This was a boat that she was making on purpose to protect him. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him, it says in verse four. Now, we don't know how old the sister is. We don't know how much older. We'll see in a moment. She's at least old enough to talk. And so maybe she was six or seven or nine or 10. We don't know. But she's off nearby watching. And it says in verse five, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, right? So his sister's watching nearby. She's sort of spying in on this. She now inserts herself. She gets courageous. She gets bold. She steps forward, verse seven. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? 
And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So having let him go in the Nile, here's what it's saying, having let him go in the Nile, now she's being paid to nurse him. Some of you are like, how do I get in on that deal? That was not one of the options for me when I had a baby. But here's the thing, not so fast. You actually don't want that. Because look at the next verse. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Three, four years go by, however long it took to wean baby Moses, and she gives him away. She, that's Pharaoh's daughter, named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. The word Moses means to be drawn out. So that's Moses' origin story. That was the early part of his life. That was how God set aside and protected a future savior, a future redeemer, and actually protected him and allowed him to grow up and to survive. Then, between verse 10 and verse 11, a lot of time passes. The narrator doesn't give us a great amount of detail, really any detail at all. It just simply says, one day when Moses had grown up. Now, many commentators and scholars suggest that when Moses had grown up, this next part is he's about 40 years old. That's based off of Acts chapter 7, where Stephen, uh, actually in his speech in Acts chapter 7, indicates that, that tradition held that Moses was about 40 years old. So it says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, just for a moment, let's just pause there for a second, and just, just think about what it would have been like to be Moses. He's a Hebrew. He clearly has enough of a sense that he's a Hebrew that years later, as 40 years old, he sees them as his people, and yet he's also growing up as a kind of grandson to Pharaoh. Is he Egyptian? Is he Hebrew? Yeah, kind of both. And there had to be all sorts of confusion around, well, who am I really, and where did I really come from, and all the different kinds of anxieties and challenges, and yet blessings that would have come from the way he grew up. So he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, who he thinks, that's one of my people, and he intervenes. Verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Just to be clear, he killed him. He murdered him. Buried him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known, right? He buried him. He thought, oh man, no one's going to find out about this. Everyone will protect me. I'm, I'm a Hebrew. These folks will have my back. But the very next day, he finds out that he, what he did is known. It's been seen. And he can't hide because in verse 15, it says, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Think about that. He's done something that now has his functional great-grandfather out to kill him or grandfather out to kill him. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. 
So here you have this guy. He grows up kind of Hebrew, kind of Egyptian. Now he's in a third place. He's in Midian. He's sitting by a well. And it says in verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock, right? These ladies are there. They're there to take care of their flock. And the male shepherds come and shove the ladies aside and get rid of them. And Moses actually stands up to intercede on their behalf to be a kind of savior for them, preshadowing how he will be a savior to Israel. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Isn't that interesting? They don't say a Hebrew. They say an Egyptian. Probably the way he talked, the way he was dressed, the way he handled himself, he seemed Egyptian. He's this multicultural guy. Who is he? Dad says, verse 20, to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man, right? He's like me. He's thinking, we got weddings to pay for here. And this guy just stood up for you and just helped you. And you left him. Like, get this guy home for dinner with us. Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. The word Gershom, that name, means an alien there. And isn't that how Moses felt? He was an alien in Pharaoh's house. He was an alien among the Hebrews that he sought to protect. He didn't quite fit. Now he's in a foreign land in Midian and he's an alien there. Everywhere he goes, he's a stranger. He doesn't fit. And his son is this walking, living, breathing reminder that he's been rejected and that he's alone. Well, the author then zooms out and gives the big picture. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And in chapter three, next week, we'll begin to see what God does to intervene based on his seeing, his hearing, and his knowing. But what I want to do today for the rest of our time here is is I think that Exodus 2, even though the main point of it is just trying to give us the background of Moses and trying to set up that God knows this and God has intervened, that's the point in the telling of this story, I think chapter 2 actually provides a good case study for us that I think actually intersects with where a number of us are at. And so I want to look at, at three different lessons that we can pull out from this chapter here in Exodus chapter 2. And the first is a lesson for those with children. There's a lesson for parents here. There's a lesson for those with children here in Exodus chapter 2. Maybe some of you have had this experience just in the last month of uh, maybe for the first time walking your kid who's starting kindergarten to school or getting out of your car and walking up with them and you're holding their hand and you can't quite tell who's more nervous if it's them or if it's you. And that, that moment of releasing your kid to go be with someone else for the day, like, that's scary, isn't it? Some of you have had this as you, or you're about to have this as you think about college, 
right? And you're about to take a kid to college, and I know who's more nervous about that. It's you. <laughs> and, and you're going to let them go into this wide world, and you're going to get back in the car, or you're going to get on a plane, and you're going to let this child go. There's a lesson in this story for those with children. See, Moses' mother, I think, is a remarkable case study in what we do as parents. See, what we do as parents, here's the lesson, is that we do all that you can and then release them to God. Do all that you can and then release them to God. That's what she does. See, I think if you've read this story before or if you've heard this story before, you kind of have this idea that Moses' mother just sort of chucked him into the Nile and, oh, good fortune, he got scooped up. But if you read this story, what you see actually is that his mother does all that she can to ensure his survival and thriving. But then she has to let him go. Look at what she does. She makes him an ark. That's again what it says in verse 3. She, she doesn't just throw him in any kind of basket. She seals this thing up with pitch, with tar. It's a kind of glue that would keep water from getting in it. She places it among the reeds, right? She doesn't just chuck him out into the middle of the river. She puts it in a place where it's likely to get stuck. Notice as well, who shows up there? Verse five, the daughter of Pharaoh, a famous person, a royal person. Now listen, if you've ever grown up in a place where there are government officials or famous people, you know about it. You know where they live, right? Like I was just in Denver recently with some friends and we drove by a neighborhood and I said, hey, that neighborhood, that's where John Elway lived. Right, if you have a business, you have a coffee shop, or you have a restaurant, and there's famous people that come in there, their pictures are on the wall with you, right? Because when famous people are around, you notice it, right? So she didn't just pick any random place with reeds where the basket might get stuck, but rather, I'm sure she knew that Pharaoh's daughter, this was a frequent place for her to come do the most private thing she's gonna do, which is bathe, so it seems like she's strategic. It's likely to get stuck. It's likely to be seen. And then notice, she sends the older daughter ahead to watch. And I have to think she was coaching that girl up, wasn't she? Right, because I don't think most six or seven or nine or 10-year-olds are gonna be quite bold enough to step forward. And so surely Moses' mom was going, hey, now when this gets found, if there's any kind of compassion here, uh, please, Please just step forward and offer this suggestion. Here's what you say. Okay, let's practice. Run it again. Let's, let's practice it again. Here's what you say. And she puts, it, puts him in a place where if anybody's going to kind of have compassion, maybe it'll work out okay because it's Pharaoh's daughter. He's not going to kill his own daughter for this. So she does all that she can. She does the preparations, she teaches the lessons, she prepares the way as best as she can, and then at some point she still has to get down and release him. Isn't that what parenting is? You teach them, you prepare, you think ahead, you plan, you do your best, you nurture, you coach, you anticipate, but then at some point you let go. Say, God, they're in your hands. Now, you might go, well, but, but she got him back right away. Yeah. But then three or four years later, you saw what it said. She had to bring him to Pharaoh's daughter and let go. 
Now, she did it when he was three or four years old. You do it when your kid's 18 or 19 or, God forbid, in their 20s. But it's come, right? this is the moment that is coming for all of us. And so I just want to encourage those of you who are parents, like keep the hard work of parenting, keep it going. Do what you can, but then release them to the Lord. Some of you, you know this well, because you serve with foster care. You have foster kids that come into your house where you know that you're just going to do the best you can to help this kid, to love this kid, to nurture this kid, to help this kid heal maybe a little bit from trauma, to work with a caseworker, and to do all the different things that you can do to try to help this kid be in a better place when they leave than when you got them. But you know, I still am going to have to let go. This is what it is to be a parent. You do all you can, and you release them to God. I remember the first time that I was dropping Abby off at our, at our student ministry winter camp. That's every January. And there's just this powerless feeling you have as a parent when you drive up and you kind of pray for your kid, and then you're driving away and you're thinking, God, I really want you to touch her life. I really want you to speak to her. I really want you to use the mentors and the relationships and I want you to protect her and keep her safe. And God, I don't have any control over what happens in the next 48 hours. And I drove out of the parking lot and I remember thinking, that's what all of life is like. You're doing your best, you're teaching them, but then you trust them to the Lord. Hopefully that's an encouragement to those of you who are parents. Keep slugging it out, but then trust them. To the Lord. Here's the second lesson. It's a lesson for those with regrets. There's a lesson in this story for those with regrets. Now, maybe some of you already are thinking, well, that's an area of regret, is I don't know if I did all I could. I think there are some things maybe as a, as a mom or a dad, I wish I'd have done different, or I wish I had taught them this, or now I know Jesus. I didn't know Jesus when they were young, and if I could go do those early years over again, and, and you have regrets... Regrets are common. Do you have regrets? J.C. Ryle said the two rarest things in the world are a young man without pride and an old man without regrets. Where are your regrets? So you don't have to be old to have regrets. You just have to be alive. What are your regrets? Maybe you regret some things that happened in a moment. Right, you regret that first hit of that drug that you took and it hooked you. And you thought, oh, that, that, I hear about that and that happens, but not to me, and it did. And the rest of your life has been filled with the challenges that came from that moment and you regret it. Maybe you regret that one night stand that led to lots of other difficult choices that you never anticipated, not to mention the shame that you felt. Maybe you regret just the way you lost your temper in that moment and you said something to your child or to your parents or to someone else that you loved and as soon as the words were coming out, you wished you could start grabbing them back but you couldn't and they came out and they cut and they hurt and you regret it. Maybe your regret comes not just from a moment but from a season. Some of you would probably say, I have a whole past marriage filled with regret. I regret how I handled it. I regret who I chose. I regret how I let it go. I regret, I just regret, regret, regret. Some of you, like I said, might have the regret of being a parent thinking, oh, I wish I had done this. I wish I had known that. Some of us just have regrets from our whole life before Jesus. 
where you go, you know what? Oh, I came to faith. Oh, it was so awesome. I came to faith at 42. I came to eight, faith at 53. But you know what? I've got 41 and 52 years of regret because I didn't know Jesus and I just lived for myself. Here's the lesson if you have regret. Because the reality is Moses had to be filled with regret. Right? Why did I kill that guy? Why did I lose my temper? Why did I, get the, why did I let my, my temper get the best of me? We're going to see throughout the story, Moses is going to keep struggling with this. And you know he had to be walking to Midian going, what did I do? Why, why, how did I let this happen? I had a life of everything I could ever have wanted. I threw it away. Here's the lesson. Failure doesn't have to be final. Failure doesn't have to be final. See, Moses is not finished. This is all part of God's story to prepare him and to use him. He's gonna be in this desert in Midian for another 40 years. So he's gonna be about 80 years old by the time he sees the burning bush and God tells him to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. He's got 80 years to live with regret. But that's not the end of his story because failure doesn't have to be final. God is going to use this stuttering murderer who killed a man. And that's who God is gonna pick. Maybe you're a person here today that goes, gosh, if you knew what I have done, if you know the baggage I have, if you know the way I feel unclean, the way I feel guilty, the way I feel afraid because of the decisions I've made, there is no way God would use me. Maybe he'd use someone that kind of you know, went to Christian school their whole life. But not me. This is who God uses. Your failure doesn't have to be final. We were in Colorado visiting my parents this summer. We were uh, at the house that I spent middle school and high school in. And my uh, kids stumbled upon my old high school yearbooks. And so they were looking at all the pictures. But then they started reading all the things that people wrote, right? And they come to me and they're like, Dad, who's Katie? Because... <laughs> Have you read what she wrote to you? Like, she was kind of into you. And I was like, oh, I can't blame her, you know? <laughs> but then they keep reading, and they keep looking, and they keep going, well, who's this? Well, who's that? Well, who's that? And part of it was fun, but it wasn't long before my mind was just swirling with regret about how those were the days when I said I was a Christian, and proclaimed to be a Christian. But I was selfish and mean. There were times when I would do what now would be called bullying. I think about girls that I tried to manipulate in relationships, just filled with regret. I thought, I wonder how many people now I'm Facebook friends with from high school who see sermons that, I'm, that I've had posted who think, <laughs> I know what that guy was really like. And you know what? I can't undo all that. But I rejoice that failure isn't final and that God is using those things to shape me and to grow me and to change me 
And I praise God I'm not, not who I was then. And I praise God that in 20 years I won't be who I am now because failure doesn't have to be final. Here's the third lesson that I see in this story. It's a lesson for those who've been rejected. You ever been rejected? Right, you go on a date and you think it's great and then she just ghosts you? You've been betrayed by a colleague at work. Some of you have worked in churches or nonprofits or you've been part of some team and you thought the people that had your back, you found out they didn't. You ever feel rejected? Had adult children push you away? Hey, congratulations, you're a grandpa, but we don't really want you around. Had a spouse betray you, leave you? Moses experiences Rejection, look again at verse 14. The the guy answered him after he said, hey, why'd you hit your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Right, and this actually is gonna begin this whole cycle that will go through this whole book of Moses being rejected by his people. He'll lead them and they'll be thankful for a minute and then they will criticize his leadership and say, "Who, who appointed you to this? And he's going to be rejected and rejected and rejected. This won't be the last time. But here he is, rejected. He's, he's feeling like, I was in a position of power and influence, being close to Pharaoh, and I was going to use that on behalf of my people, and my people don't want it. So off he goes, rejected, tail between his legs, naming his son, I'm an alien here. You ever feel forgotten? Some of you have experienced this, right? You had the death in your family. Everyone else moved on. But you're still there. And you can't quite move on like they have. You feel forgotten. Some of you that have had chronic pain, right? At the beginning of it, everyone's there for you and there's more meals than you can eat. But now two or three years have passed. It's like, hey... Still here, still hurting. Some of you have taken that foster care journey and it started out with lots of support but then it got heavier and harder and the people around you have had a hard time supporting you the way that you'd hoped they would. You feel forgotten? Here's the lesson from this passage. God hears, sees, and knows you. God sees, hears, and knows you. Look at what it says in chapter two, verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What an encouraging word, not just to Moses and not just to Israel, but also to us, that God sees, God hears, and God knows. Moses was rejected and felt forgotten. The people of Israel, right, they're struggling under the burden of slavery. They're being oppressed. They're having to kill their baby boys or try to hide them until they are killed by someone else. And they're groaning. They're crying out and they're feeling forgotten. But God remembered. God saw. God heard. God knew. What about you? You've been rejected. You've suffered. You feel forgotten, alone, abandoned. I'm here to tell you today, God sees you and God hears you 
God knows you. You say, well, Luke, how can you, how can you be so confident about that? I mean, if you were in my shoes, you just wouldn't say that with such confidence. Here's how I know. Because Moses wasn't the only one to be rejected and forgotten. And Israel weren't the only group of people to be rejected and to feel forgotten. And you're not the only person to reject it, be rejected and feel forgotten. See, there was another one, another person who was rejected, who suffered, and who felt forgotten. This man, he didn't just leave an Egyptian palace. He left a heavenly one. This man wasn't just rejected by his people. He was rejected by the whole world. And this man didn't just suffer and groan, but he actually suffered to the point of death for a crime he did not commit. And Jesus, this suffering servant, is the one who did not do this because he was a helpless victim, but he chose it. He moved into it. It was on purpose. It was decisive. Why? Because he wanted the world to know that God sees and God hears and God knows. And if you move toward the one who moved toward you, you can have the confidence that he is with you, that he is for you, that he's holding you up, and that in time he is putting you back together because your failure is not final. There's hope today. God sees you. God hears you. And God knows you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we thank you today that you hear us, you see us, and you know us, that you remember us, and that you remember your promises to us. God, we, uh, we, we hate the pain of regret that we feel, the pain of the suffering and solitude we sometimes experience. But God, we thank you that in the moments of crushing, in the moments of bruising, in the moments of being beaten down, that you are producing something new and beautiful out of it. God, we thank you that we're seen and we're heard and we're known. Comfort us today with your presence. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.